We are in Mark 11, verse 1 through 10. It is Palm Sunday. It's the week before Easter. It's really the Sunday before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, the week of Passover. It is the biggest celebration of the Jews. It's where the pilgrims from all over the ancient world descended upon the holy city, Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Josephus, the first century historian, wrote that one year, almost three million people took part in the celebration. It was awesome to behold. In this chapter, what we're gonna see is, in essence, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You think I'm speaking of Jesus, and I am, but also there's many components to that. We've got two groups of people that Jesus Christ is surrounded by primarily. I'll let you know what they are in a moment. Those biscuits and gravy were so good this morning. (laughs) Amen. We've got two groups going on. We've got the group one is the common people. They want Jesus to come destroy Rome, to put it bluntly, to come in peace and prosperity, just take over. Uh, We've got group two, as we'll see in just a little while. They are the Jewish authorities. They are fearful that Jesus will bring in a rebellion that will lose, and they will lose their power with Rome. Ultimately, the problem is they're jealous of Jesus. Um, They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. But what's fascinating about both of these groups, they both got it wrong. Group one fails to see that their greatest problem is not Rome. The greatest problem is themselves, sin that dwells in each one of them, just the same way as us. Group two is wrong for refusing to bow the knee to the king of kings. They both got it wrong. Now, to be clear, in Jesus, in his first coming, Jesus came as king, not as a great, and not simply as a great teacher. Uh, he never refuses the title. He never refuses people worshiping him as Lord, as king, but he denies their expectations, as we'll see in just a little bit. He will destroy his enemies one day, but first he came to die as the Passover lamb for the sins of his people, bringing us to the Father. Folks everywhere, though, we're talking about Jesus. He's this healer. He's a charismatic teacher. He's unafraid of rulers. Could this be the Messiah that will save his people? Anticipation, piping hot. Let's take a look now. This is the word of God. Chapter 11, verse one through three. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks or rather says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. So here's the geography of it. Jesus is coming from the east with his apostles and then many people following him. Uh, He's traveling through two small towns, Bethphage, which means house of unripe figs, and then Bethany, which is house of dates, Will not be on the test, but I thought that was interesting. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead 
shortly, shortly beforehand. So the whole nation is starting to come after him, except for, as we'll see, these Jewish leaders. Well, he arrives at the Mount of Olives. Uh, mountain in English, uh, it generally connotes a higher elevation than it often does in places like Israel. The Mount of Olives is literally 100 feet higher than Jerusalem. But you have to go down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and then back up to Jerusalem. Uh, it's named for the large number of olive trees which grew on it. Uh, by God's grace, I was able to go there uh, a couple of times. Uh, it's a wonderful place. If you get on the top of the Mount of Olives, you're looking straight down at the city. Uh, you can imagine uh, at that particular time period, looking down and seeing the golden uh, Jerusalem temple. Even today, if you go, you will see a golden Dome of the Rock, which is a mosque, but it's still impressive. Um, it's, it's pretty fascinating. So they're up there, and Jesus is going to send off these two disciples. You know who these two are. No, you don't. I don't either. No one knows who they are. Uh, we have no idea. Uh, it's not necessary. So these two, they went to go get the colt that was tied up. And notice, no one has ever sat upon it. We'll talk about that in a moment. But suffice it to say that in Old Testament law, it specified that an animal devoted to sacred purposes had to be one that was not used for ordinary purposes. That means if there was a sacred animal, like a donkey or a colt or a horse, you don't sit on it. It's for sacred purposes, and it was set apart. And in particular, it's going to be set apart for the Messiah. I want you to note this also. The disciples are about to bring this cult, and Jesus prepares them. He says, hey, if they ask you why, just say the Lord has need of it. Which some of you, you think, well, that's pretty normative. But for some of you, it's piqued your interest, and for good reason. You see, there's two meanings for this word Lord, and the context typically determines which is right. Uh, first off, it can be used... Uh, as a definition of sir, or as we would say in the Spanish, senor, correct? Uh, and so what he could mean is that he, Jesus told these two men to go, and they're going to say, the Lord has need of it. That means Jesus has made prior arrangements with these uh, owners of a cult to come snatch it, and then we'll bring it back to you right afterwards. However, there is another meaning for the word Lord, and most of y'all use it in this fashion, that it means God. It connotes deity, the one who is omniscient, and he knows all things. And very well, it could have been used in that fashion, that as these two uh, disciples approach these people that are owning this cult, uh, they say, basically, God has need of it. And then these men say, okay, go. It's interesting. You can take it. It's hard to tell. Sometimes context will tell you it, but it's difficult. I think very well they're saying God has need of it. it God meaning Jesus Christ as well. Uh, a guy named J.C. Ryle agrees with me, or maybe I agree with him. Uh, he was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Ryle was an uh, Anglican uh, preacher in the 19th century England, very evangelical. He writes this. Think about it for a moment. How terrifying for unbelievers. The thought of Christ's perfect knowledge should alarm sinners and wake them up to repentance. The great head of the church knows them. He knows all their doings. The judge of all sees them all 
the time and notes their ways. There is no darkness where the workers of iniquity can hide themselves. That's for the unbeliever. How about for the believer? What's great comfort? It spurs us on to good works. Think about it like this. Our master sees all things. His eyes are always upon us. And like Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. That's the sort of God we serve. So great terror for an unbeliever, and rightly so, or great comfort for a believer. Continuing on, verse four through six, and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of these standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So Jesus gave them the rendition, and it happened exactly as he said. Now, by the way, I want to add a quick caveat here. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew makes it clear that it was a cult and its mother. So if you've ever wondered how the story goes, Mark doesn't believe it's important. The Spirit didn't put it upon him, but he put it upon Matthew to make sure it's a cult and its mother. And yet Jesus will be the one writing the cult while the mother would come alongside. Well, you will also note this, uh, this phrase untied, or you will have to tie it or untied. It says it a few times there. And you think, is that redundant on purpose? Is the spirit trying to show us something? Maybe so. Is this in itself a messianic sign? You may not have thought about this before, but in Genesis 49, Jacob is on his deathbed and he brings all of his sons in and he prophesies over them and tells them this is what will be your future or the people that will be named after you. And he speaks to Judah of the tribe of Judah and he says some amazing things. I think it's fascinating that the Messiah, Messianic line goes through Judah. When you're done reading the story of Joseph, you think, oh, it's gotta be Joseph. It's not. God's mercy comes through once again. So he says to Judah, his son, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So he tells in the messianic line, the kingly line is gonna come through Judah, but then he adds something else in verse 11. It says this, binding his foal, a foal is a colt, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. You may have read that verse thousands of times and not realize, is he, Jacob, predicting not only the kingly line through Judah, but also Jesus Christ himself? He takes the colt, it's tied up. And not only that, what is he, wash, what is he washing his garments in? Wine, the blood of grapes. This one is gonna die. All right? what are you doing, they say, and they let him go. And you, you think about it, I remember reading the story as a kid, and I think, is Jesus kind of swiping this animal from these people? What's happening here? No, you should note this. There was a custom that was very familiar at that time, especially among uh, the Roman Empire, called Angaria. Uh, Angaria, it's Latin, and it allowed for the impressment of animals for service for a significant figure. 
That may not mean much to you, but you know this. We have a few police officers in this, uh, a few men of the force here, men and women perhaps. I don't know. I'm looking around. Um, if ever they've been in a car accident, police certainly can come to your car and say, hey, I'll need to take your vehicle. We're in pursuit of someone here. And if you're smart, you say, yes, sir, hand him the keys. Important figures can do that. And certainly we have here is that uh, they would seem to know that if it's not for the Lord, meaning sir, an important character, it's for the Lord, meaning God, give him the donkeys, give him the colt. Verse seven and eight, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields. Note when they throw their cloaks on it, and as soon as Jesus sits on it, he's going to be sitting on a very small, and not just a donkey, but a colt. One of the commentators had said something, the fact of his feet may have almost dragged the ground. Um, you're for, at this particular time, a prophecy is being fulfilled. A prophecy six, over 600 years old. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, some of you are perhaps scratching your heads and go, so he sat on a colt. So what? I mean, many people could have fulfilled that prophecy. No, stay with me here. You see, when Israel's rulers wanted to present themselves as servants of the people, they rode donkeys, not horses. You wouldn't ride a horse if you wanted to present yourself as a servant to the people. If you wanted to present yourself as a, as a strong, powerful leader, you always rode a horse. Uh, horses were instruments of warfare. By the way, it's interesting, in our country, uh, you will typically see the president, when he's inaugurated, he's going down Pennsylvania Avenue, he's never in a tank, right? By the way, if you see that, it's time to switch memberships to different countries because that's a, that's a situation of war. No, he's in a limousine or sometimes he's just walking out there. Uh, and that's what we have here. Jesus is appearing not only as a servant ruler, but he's not even on a regular donkey. He's on a colt perhaps even showing that he's a lowly servant leader, which he is and was. And notice this, no one had ever ridden it. Now, in a group like this, I'm sure there's some folks that are involved in agriculture or ranching. Um, I myself have had very little experience in that. I'm what they say, all hat and no cattle. <laughs> but I know this, you don't get on a horse that hadn't been broken. He may be green broke and you can put a harness on him, but you're not going to sit on that thing if you know what you're doing, if you've never broken a horse before. Notice this though, this colt is unbroken. No one had ever sat on it. And yet Jesus sits on it comfortably. You can imagine, everybody knew at that time, period, you know, that colt hadn't been broken yet. <laughs> Let's just see what Jesus does here. Sits on it. No problems. Now, if you're a first century Jew, that should, that should light up something in your mind. For us, we go, okay. But for them, it means something more. 
What could this mean? Could it mean that this man sitting before you on this unbroken colt is the man to fulfill the Adamic covenant, the covenant of Adam mandate that the first Adam could not do? Remember, what is the first Adam told to do in Genesis 1.28? He says in part, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's the mandate. Has it really been fulfilled? Is there any human being that has dominion over all the animals? No, this one does. This one steps up, sits on the colt, and he takes him. One of... uh, The pastors at Believer's Chapel, Dan Duncan, says it like this. The donkey seemed to understand better than they did. The donkey understood Christ, or and he obeyed Christ as if he understood he was carrying his creator. Because he was. Isaiah 1.3 puts it this way. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. It's fascinating to think about that this donkey knew exactly who was on top of him. Spread their cloaks on the road, we see. You see, placing one's cloak on the road before someone was a sign of royal homage. It's as if you were saying, this person is king. They spread leafy branches cut from the fields. The reason why we call this Sunday Palm Sunday As we see in John chapter 12, verse 13, it notes that palm branches in particular uh, were used. Uh, Palm branches in Israel were symbolic of joy. It'd be like pom-poms, if you will, but they're uh, palm leaves. Uh, Also at the time of the Maccabees, which was for you history junkies, uh, uh, the Maccabees were 200 years before Christ when the Jews rebelled against the Syrians and the palms were not just symbolic of joy, but pride. This is Israel. This is the palm leaf right here. How enthusiastic they were. I think you're catching their enthusiasm. It's, It's just, especially as we cry out, Hosanna. What would it be like to be Israel's sandals, dominated by Rome, enslaved hundreds of years by different peoples? You're waiting for the Messiah And then you see one coming and it's not him. And then another one rises and it's not him. But this one fulfills everything about the Messiah. How enthusiastic they were. And yet I want you to note this, Grace Church. Enthusiasm should never be mistaken for faith. I'm gonna say that again. Enthusiasm should never be mistaken for faith. The number of teenagers in particular, although adults can do this too, The number of teenagers who have enthusiastically followed Christ, I've been on those mission trips, the enthusiasm, the singing, the tears, the prayers, only to abandon Christ shortly after high school graduation, if not by the end of the summer. And it makes you wonder, what happened there? Do they lose their faith? No, you cannot lose your faith. Faith is a gift of God. cannot lose something you didn't earn. Well, what you find out is what they're trusting in. They never trusted in Jesus. They trusted in the experience. It was amazing. It was emotional. It was heartfelt. I was there. It's enthusiasm. 
Now, to be clear, we shouldn't be wooden in our relationship with the Lord. We should allow that enthusiasm of Christ to consume us and yet never trusting in enthusiasm, but in the Lord. Verse nine and 10, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Moy did a great job of explaining. Hosanna, it's an Aramaic expression. Save now or, or help, I pray. By Jesus' time, it was a formula of praise, shouting praises to the Lord. And then they say this interesting phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That comes straight from Psalm 118, verse 26. It's called the Egyptian Hallel. It's a psalm. Praising the Lord for his deliverance of them from Egypt, thus celebrating the Passover. What's so interesting about the phrase, though, it was originally a statement that was welcoming pilgrims as they approached the temple. They would come down Mount of Olives, up the valley of Kidron, and as they entered the temple, they would hear people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you'd look back at that person and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was something you would give to pilgrims. And it was straight out of the scriptures, Psalm 118, verse 26. And it was for pilgrims. And what did they mean by that? The point of it is, is that you're coming in the name of the Lord to his temple. And you are a pilgrim. And it's almost like, welcome home, baby. You're home. It's interesting now that they're not just saying it to all these pilgrims. They're now saying it to no regular pilgrim, the coming Messiah. And if it's true of us, and if it's true of the ancient Jews, it's even more so true of Jesus Christ that he is coming in the name of the Lord. It goes further and they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. This statement refers to the Davidic kingdom that they hoped the Messiah was coming. And look, the language they're using. The coming kingdom, our father, David. You see, they knew. They knew 2 Samuel seven sixteen, where God spoke to David and said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, fulfilled every promise of the Messiah. What's interesting, have you thought about this before? Uh, the Jewish authorities questioned Jesus and they questioned him on him being virgin born. That they, they actually intimate or even maybe go further than intimation and in saying, you were born of immorality. But you know what they never questioned him on? They never questioned him on his lineage. They never said, I don't think he's really of the, of the tribe of Judah. I don't think he's of the line of David. They never do it. Why? Because they, they had the files. They knew them. The ancient Jews, uh, they had generations memorized back 20, 10, 20 generations, even further. And I'm sure they looked up with Jesus and they're like, oh boy, we got problems. This guy is of the tribe of Judah. He is of the line of David. Well, let's question him on that virgin birth thing. So that's our first group of people. Can we take a look now at Luke? 
Go ahead and hold your place there in Mark if you'd like so you can look at it later. But also take a look at Luke chapter 19. We're going to see a second group of people. I've already told you about the first group. They're ready for the Messiah. They're chomping at the bit. Now we've got a second group of people, and they really hate Jesus. Luke chapter 19, verse 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Here, once again, the second group of uh, people here, they're the Jewish authorities. They hate Jesus. They despise the common people for loving him, and they are fearful. They are losing their power over the country. So they command Jesus to tell the disciples to stop singing and shouting. Have you wondered why? What's the big deal? Well, what we see is their claims are much too great. It makes this very clear uh, in John. Actually, it says that they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And at this point, the Jewish authorities are like, oh, that's too much. Uh Uh-uh. No, no, no. Shut this one down. Shut this one down. And it's interesting, Jesus, his answer, he says, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I know many of us take that metaphorical, but what if Jesus actually meant it literally? Have you considered that? Look down at the stones and they're developing mouths and opening up and you're like, oh boy. He may have meant it literally, but I will tell you this, it's a rebuke, and it's a, bu- a rebuke that they would clearly understand. It's, it's like Jesus is saying, even inanimate creation knows what's taking place. Even the rocks know what's going on here, and you yourselves, it's almost like you yourselves know it, but you refuse to acknowledge it. Jesus accepted the crowd's enthusiasm. He is Israel's king, just not the king they wanted. He came first to die for the people. He would come a second time as a conqueror of their enemies in the future. Yet in his first coming, he came as one who would do what? Destroy our worst enemy, sin and death. So at this point, you're starting to wonder, but doesn't he cry at some point? And he does. And we'll just look at that in closing. Weeping over Jerusalem. Take a look. Chapter 19, verse 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Just a cursory explanation of this, not a, not a whole lot of time here. Just wanted to make this very clear. Jesus is weeping in the midst of cheering. It happens sometime in the midst of this. You see, Jesus knows these people don't want a savior to rescue from sin. They want a conqueror to rescue from Rome. So he says, now, now, the things that make for peace. What are the things that make for peace? What's the good news of Jesus Christ 
that God sent a savior into the world to die for the sins of the world. The good news of Jesus are now hidden from your eyes. It's interesting, the word hidden there, it's not passive, it's active. It's the way it looks is like this. Light rejected is light hidden. A judicial blindness for hard hearts. Y'all remember the story of Pharaoh? How oftentimes he told the children of Israel, no. And it says his heart, uh, he hardened his heart. And also what else happened? God hardened his heart. It's not either or, it's both and. We'll mention that in just a moment by way of application. Jesus knows something else. It's not just sad enough they don't want him as their king, but more importantly, he knows the future. He knows in AD 70, Romans are coming and they're gonna destroy Jerusalem. They're gonna slaughter the people and burn the temple to the ground. Why? Luke 19, 44, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Another commentator writes, the people don't seek Christ's kingdom. They want their own kingdom. You see, in conclusion, that's what we have here. We have two groups of people. Group one fails to see that their greatest problem is sin. Speaking to you all today now, there's a group of people in here. You don't have anything on your forehead. There's no lights that light up. On your, that shows what you're thinking, but the Lord knows. And you don't realize that your greatest problem is sin. And the Bible's very clear, the wages of sin is death. God in his perfect justice one day at the end of your life will give you your wages. You've worked for them. You've sinned your entire life without ever coming to Christ as the sin bearer. And he will give you your wages. The wages of sin is death. And it's not just speaking physical death because we all die. It's spiritual death. And just to be blunt, because the Bible's blunt on this, it's called the lake of fire. And there's no escape. And the reason why you have to go there is you have to pay for your sins. And if you're thinking today, I don't want to pay for my sins. Well, then I've got great news for you today. And that is this. God loved us so much, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin meaning Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus Christ lived a life that you and I could never live. He lived this perfect life. His obedience was perfect according to the law, and yet he gave himself up. He wasn't caught on a bad day. He gave himself up to die on the cross. God's wrath fell upon him. He dies, three days later, he rises from the dead. And it's almost like God's saying, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name given among men by which you must be saved. This is the one. Well, a lot of people know about Jesus Christ. That's, we know Easter time, he rose from the dead. Christmas, he was born. That doesn't make a person right in God's sight. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you're saved through um, faith. <laughs> And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. We're going to have a baptism here in just a little bit. Two kids are going to get dunked, <laughs> rightly so, and it's going to do nothing for their salvation, because water doesn't save. It's another element. It's not the element of water. It's not the element of fire. It's the element of blood, Jesus Christ's blood. So if you've not come to the place and yet of trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, 
Come to him today. All you get to bring are your sin. That's it. Bags and bags and bags of it. And yet the Lord will take you in. So as I said, one group fails to see their greatest problem is sin. The second group fails to bow the knee to Jesus. You see, maybe you know you're a sinner and you know you can't pay for your sins, but you consider Jesus kind of a friend or, or maybe not even a friend, just, a, just a, a, f- a figure in history, but you're not bowing the knee to him. That means you're not coming to the place of trusting him alone and realize that he's got to be your shepherd from here on out because you're a pretty bad shepherd of yourself. Lord will take care of you. He will take you in. And finally, for those that are in Christ today, that means you have come to the place of knowing Jesus Christ. You should remember this. You know who you are. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, it not only refers to a person, Jesus Christ, who one day he will come up, not with a donkey, not with a foal of a donkey, but as a white horse. Not as a white horse, but on a white horse, just to be clear. Zechariah 9.10 says that he shall rule from sea to sea. So he's not just Israel's king, he's the world's king. But not only that, but we see that the people of the Old Testament, Old Testament Israelites, as they came to the temple, they were greeted one another. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet if you're a believer today, as you seek to win the lost to Christ, think about it like this. Someone gave you the gospel in your past. They've been a parent, Sunday school teacher. And what you could say about them is blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. They came to me. And then the question you have to ask yourself, are you going out to others? Because God has called you to that. So to recap, if you're an unbeliever in Christ, if you are an unbeliever today, do you know him yet? Have you gotten to the place of trusting him alone for your salvation? And if you are a believer today, note that God has got work for you. As we'll see in just a moment in the baptism, we don't hold these people under and send them on to glory. (laughs) We get them right back up. That's not new with me. Tommy Nelson used to say that a lot. Um, We get them right back up. Why? Because it's time for them to go make disciples to tell them about the king that came and what he did and the king that's coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We praise you for your kindness towards us. For all those that are in Christ today, Lord, it's a gift of God. You gave us faith. You gave us repentance, two different sides of the same coin. And the only reason why we came to believe is you performed divine heart surgery on us, took out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. Uh, Lord, That doesn't mean we're perfect people. We are incredibly flawed. Um, We mess up all the time. Uh, Lord, we are great sinners. But on top of that, Father, we are also saints because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray for anybody in here who has not yet know your son as their savior. Lord, would you grant it to them today? Would you help them to come to trust in Christ alone for their sins? In your son's name we pray it, amen.